Today we're, uh, we're starting a new sermon series, and uh, I'm calling it Greatest Hits of the Faith, and before we read today, I just want to give you a little bit of an introduction to that series. What I want to do, what we're going to do together is focus on some of the highlights of what we believe as a church, as, as Christians, and we're going to use a really great summary of the Bible as our guide for this, and it's called the Heidelberg Catechism. As much as you might hear some churches piously tell people, we just believe the Bible, we just believe Jesus, no creed but Christ, the fact is every church has written and sometimes unwritten statements of faith. The very first statement of faith in the history of the church after Jesus was very simple and straightforward. And it, the very, you know what the first creed was? The first statement of faith of the early Christians? Jesus is Lord. That's all it was. Jesus is Lord. And if you think about it, in a lot of ways, that does say it all. That says it all. So, but why do we have creeds and catechisms and confessions? Well, as time went on, Christians realized people had different ideas of what that means, Jesus is Lord. And so they went back to the Bible, they studied it, the writings, and they tried uh, to clarify things, further explain. And in the time of the early church, the Apostles' Creed and some other creeds were developed out of that. Another rich time of going back to God's Word and further explaining what churches believe happened around the time of the Reformation. And actually, dozens and dozens of confessions and creeds were written and developed. The Heidelberg Catechism is one of those that has stood the test of time from that time period. It, you'll find it in the back of the Psalter Hymnal. It's very ecumenical. It's biblically based. It's warm. It's spiritual. It's practical. It's relevant. Sometimes I've heard Christians today get a little scared or nervous or something about the word catechism or confession. Of course, I know that's not true of any of you out here. But all it is, is a summary of the Bible's teaching. You, you can't find everything at a moment's notice as much as we're called to be in the Word and reading the Word. There's a lot of words in the Word. So Christians have found it helpful to have summaries of the Bible's teaching for Christians, especially for uh, younger Christians and new believers. And the Heidelberg Catechism has been found to be so helpful that it's often been said to be the third most widely read Christian book in history. First of all, the Bible's number one. Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan is number two. And then the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, that's why we teach our kids the catechism here at Faith, actually, from 7th grade through 11th, 12th grade. The whole thing is a treasure, but certain lessons stand out. And those standout lessons are what we're going to focus these five, six, seven sermons on. It's kind of like if you're a big fan of, and I don't know, anybody, Eric Clapton, Mariah Carey, Erasure, Michael W. Smith. They're all great artists. You love all their songs. But even among those, all those great songs, there are some standouts. There are some greatest hits. 
And all those people and a lot of other ones have greatest hits, CDs or albums. We're going to look at those standout ones. And one that does stand out is number one. It's the introduction to the whole catechism, an introduction to the faith, really. I've heard in putting together CDs or albums, I don't know what we call them anymore. I mean, mostly you get them online anyway, so I don't even know if they're CDs or albums. But what they always used to do was the second or third track was like the best track on the CD or on the record or on the album. So there's like one or two to kind of ease you into this artist's music. And then the one that they think is the best, that's maybe going to be the hit single or whatever, historically has been like the second or third. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism gives us the best at number one, the first track, the full fireworks of, of what we have is here. Um, it, it says some pretty cool stuff. I, I'd actually really encourage you, maybe in your family, we, we can't do this because we can't get in small groups and have the time for it. There's so much that stands out here. It'd be really interesting to hear other people's reflections on what is meaningful to them in this Lord's Day, in this first lesson. And I'd encourage you to do that. Do it around the table with your, your family. Do it in your small group this week and just share what you, you see, what strikes you in this lesson. We're going to focus on something in particular this morning together in worship. But before we do that, we're going to go to God's Word and then to the Catechism. A brief introductory text, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Yeah, that should be up there. And this gets at two really, there's so much packed into this lesson. The most wonderful thing about it is that we get a focus on the glory of God and the comfort and assurance and personal stuff in our lives. So both of those together, and this verse really gives us that. The glory of God, comfort for us that we can give to others. Listen to God's holy word. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. So praise be to him who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And then what our focus is, is this first lesson. I'm going to read the question. If we could all read the answer, that would be great. And the question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And together. So I want to share with you what God has laid on my heart as I studied this particular Lord's Day this week. I believe what we're being shown in this lesson number one is how our faith, the faith, is God-centered. 
All right? That's very simply our focus this morning. I believe Lord's Day 1, they're called Lord's Days because there's 52 of them. They originally meant to be teaching or in worship once a week, all week long. It just means lesson. I'll often say lesson. I believe Lord's Day 1 gives us a God-centered faith. This lesson is rooted thoroughly in the scripture, and you couldn't see all the footnotes up front, but you'd see them in the back of the Psalter if you turn there. Thoroughly scripturally based, and that means the Bible gives us a a God-centered faith. A God-centered faith is not only the true faith, a God-centered faith is what we need in life. A God-centered faith is the type of faith the world needs too. There's another very important confession that gives us this same emphasis, and it's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's probably the most well-known catechism in the world after the Heidelberg. At the very beginning of it too, it sets the tone for this whole summary of what we believe when it asks this, and I think we got it up here. This is question answer one from this catechism. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So you see that, to glorify God. So these two great confessions of the church set us on this track. And we've got to take that very seriously. Men and women of the faith who came before us throughout the ages have come to realize that a God-centered faith is vital. Is that the nature of our faith today? Have we been faithful today in our generation in proclaiming, in owning, and in sharing a God-centered faith? Is that what we're passing on to our kids the next generation, to the lost. What does a God-centered faith look like? Well, first of all, a God-centered faith focuses on the activities of God. And this answer is jam-packed with what God has done. Let me just tick it off for you real... What's the... Um, yeah, we don't have it up there, but it's in the, some, I saw some of you turning here already. If you want to follow along, it's page 8 in the back of the blue hymnal. Let me just tick off the activities of God that are highlighted here. God possesses. That's an activity God. He possesses. I am not my own, but belong to Jesus. God possesses completely. I belong, a little part of me? No, in body and in soul. My whole being, it says. I belong also in life and in death. Not only this life, but the life to come, through death, after death. Another activity of God, God redeems. It's something God does. God saves. It says he has fully paid for my sin. Sin separates us from God. That creates a problem, death, punishment. Jesus pays the debt with his blood, and that's called the substitutionary atonement. He received in his person, what we owed. 
And in the place of it, we get his perfect holy life without sin, righteousness. That's the core of salvation. God redeems. God saves. God sets free. That's another activity. We struggle with sin still, this side of heaven, even when we're saved. But you know what? There's a big difference sinning, and we actually saw it in that demonstration. We aren't ruled by sin anymore. As much as your, your sins bother you, and they should, and we confess them and bring them to God. But you know what? When you belong to Jesus, God sets you free. You're set free from the tyranny of the devil. Satan is not your master. As much as he tries to make you think that sometimes by making you feel guilty and saying you're no good, you keep doing that. No, you belong to Jesus. You are set free from the tyranny of the devil. God is your master. We used to be slaves to him, to Satan. Now we're free people in Jesus. If all that weren't enough, there's more that God does. God protects. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without his will. He protects and he keeps from the entire workings of the universe down to the tiniest details of our lives, even every little hair on my head. God completes. That's another activity. Our lives are filled with unfinished projects and unfinished business. Not God's. And that's part of his activity too. All things work together for my salvation. He brings it all together. His work in our lives comes to perfect completion. God assures. That's another activity of the Lord. He has his Holy Spirit, we read, who comes alongside us and assures us when we have doubts and struggles, when we wander. God empowers. That's another activity. That's the last one I'm going to focus on. His Spirit gives us strength. He makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. He empowers us for service. He empowers us through the Spirit to live for Him. So can you see, and I, I did that real, real quick, probably could have done more, but the answer is dripping with the activity of our God. That's who the writers of this Bible study series, that's what they wanted us to see. That's where they wanted us to be focused. That's where we should be focused, on him, on who he is, on what he has done, on what he is doing today in our lives in this world. Now, this kind of faith, a God-centered faith, it's the only one that can truly make a difference in your life personally. A God-centered life will change your life. Yeah, that's, I'm staring at, that's how I put it up there. It's the opposite of what you might think, Right? Our culture says, if I am to be happy in life, I got to start with me. I got to look after me. There's this whole culture of self help, and I am not here to throw out 
everything in that culture of self-help these last few decades. I firmly believe that by God's grace, even non-believing counselors and psychologists and, yes, even talk show hosts can find and share with us bits and pieces of God's truth. And people can benefit from that. But I will say this. You will not find real change. You will not find lasting change. You will not find true change for your life until you focus on God and the activities of God. If you start and end with you, you'll end up in a very bad place sooner or later. Even conservative Christian churches can get wrapped up in this me-centered thinking and making the faith and worship and the ministries about what's in it for me. But that's not it. The church, God needs to bring people to God and focus on him and who he is and what he's done. So the kicker is this. You get personal benefits. You get a personal faith and everything that goes with it when you have a God-centered faith first. You got that in our lesson. All this really personal stuff for our lives in the midst of this God-centered answer, all these activities of God, but we got comfort and care, heart change, life change, assurance, all this stuff for our lives. Let me say it just a little bit different way. People try to find personal satisfaction in all kinds of ways and actually listened to a part of a sermon just this past week talking about that, how, how we, find, we try to find personal satisfaction in, you know, there's only so many ways you can try it, in pleasure, in money, in personal achievements, like personal achievements at your workplace or in sports, or satisfaction even in good stuff like your family your kids. But we were not meant, and by that I mean we were not created and designed to be focused first and foremost in any of those areas. Augustine was a great early church father, and he said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Rest in myself, rest in man, Rest in others, rest in God. There's that God-centered focus again. You may enjoy many of the things of this world, but you will not find it until you find God. You will not be satisfied really, truly until you find God. Sometimes we go through life and we say, and, and this happens in the church, outside the church, when I get to high school, boy, it's going to all come together for me. That's going to be it. I'm going to be happy. doesn't quite happen how we think there. We think, oh, when I get, when I get into college, that's going to be the greatest. It's not quite what you thought. Then you think, when God provides me with a spouse, when I get married and I have this, just this perfect, awesome marriage and the love, and then we think, well, 
Maybe when I have kids, that's when I'll have ultimate fulfillment. You think, well, maybe when my job situation is just perfect how I want it. And we think, God, when I retire, when I retire, that's going to be it. I'm just, then I'm just going to be totally satisfied. You know what? It's never going to happen. You're never going to get there. You will be wandering, restless, your whole life long until you find rest in God. Only a God-centered faith brings personal satisfaction. Only a God-centered faith will change your life and bring personal satisfaction. Sometimes we, we use the language, my Jesus, and Jesus is mine, and that's true. That's good, that's wonderful, that's necessary. But I think there's something even greater than that that we have here. Even greater than that is I belong to Jesus. What's the difference? I want to I try to explain the difference to that. I, I want you to think about a little boy or a girl, and she says, like we say to Jesus, we say, that's my Jesus, I love him. And a little girl says, that's my dad, I love him so much, and that's so great. That means so much to me as a dad. It means we've got a good relationship. It's important. It's necessary for our relationship. But there's something even greater than that that I think we're being shown from the Bible. What's greater and more amazing than that is this. This is the row of my family. This is Sophia is five. Can I pick you up? She's so little enough that I can do that. This is Sophie. You know what's greater than she telling me how much she loves me, as awesome as that is and necessary? I'm her dad, and I say, you belong to me. I love you, and I kiss you, and I love every part of you, and I love you so much. And you know what? She comes to realize in her life what that means. The privilege, right? She has a home. Whether she's 5 or 15 or 50, is that ever going to change the fact that she's my daughter? Never, ever. She can mess up sometimes. But it never, ever changes the fact that she's my daughter, that I love her. And you know what the crazy thing about it is that I'm not a perfect dad. So I mess up. I'm not always as patient as I could be, right? And still, even through all my mistakes and issues, that gives such comfort and well-being. Any psychologist will tell you how much that means to a child to be able to, by God's grace, grow up 
in a home like that. So now think of our Father in heaven claiming us as his children. And he does it. He picks us up in his big fatherly arms perfectly, without error, ever making a mistake. That's what this is trying to get us to understand and grasp. And that's the message of the Bible. God says to us in Jesus, I love you completely. Nothing can ever take you out of my hands. You belong to me. That activity and love of God is the greatest truth the world has ever known. The faith is not about how great we are, but it's about how great he is. The faith is not about what we've done or didn't do, but about what he has done. The faith is not about how we feel day by day. Thank you, Lord, for that. It's about something concrete that will never change. The finished work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, his love, our sense of purpose and satisfaction in life come from all of that. They come from him, not from ourselves. That is the only kind of faith that can change your life. It's the only kind of faith that can change anyone's life. It's also the kind of faith, the only possible faith, that will change the world. This propels us to service. We go on to live for him. So there's this this outward focus that it brings us to, too. And sometimes the world criticizes the church, you know, for not caring about others, for being harsh, says we don't care about the poor, we don't care about justice for all and all that. And maybe sometimes we miss the boat, right? As God's people in this church in our nation. Sometimes, let's face it, we can major in the minors. Sometimes we can get sidetracked. It's not always easy. How do we handle the the Chick-fil-A thing? How do you be firm and clear in the faith yet also loving and caring to those who are weaker in faith or who are lacking faith? How do we keep being full of grace even while we make stands? It's very tough. There aren't easy answers always. Here's what I do know. We've got to start with a God-centered faith. That is what will change the world. Not a man-centered faith, not a me-centered faith, a God-centered faith. And in fact, you know, and unbelievers wouldn't want you to know this, but a God-centered faith has already changed the world. Back in the Roman Empire, it was those who proclaimed Jesus is Lord who took in orphan children and raised them as their own during the plague When the thing to do was to leave people for dead, Christians started caring for them and nursing people back to health. Hospitals, adoption, orphanages, caring for the elderly, these were unheard of before the church came on the scene. From the very beginning, back in the Old Testament, God told his people to care for the least of these, didn't he? Jesus emphasized it again and again. And God's people who know their God 
and who were focused on him and his grace and his love for the world, they shared the transforming power of his love with the world. They demonstrated it. They led the way. Are we still leading the way today? Are we? And we're called to be wholehearted in all of this, too, as the catechism says. Wholehearted in our faith. It makes me think, as a lot of things do, of, of, those, of the effort of the Olympians when I think of wholehearted. Given it their all. Isn't it insane? It's, it's amazing. But then I think of those badminton players. Did you catch that this week? In, in, did you hear about it? Players, badminton players, several of the teams were throwing games to get a better seating. They were losing on purpose, which that's pretty bad sportsmanship. And you know what happened? They got kicked out of the Olympics. People were booing from the stands when they realized what was going on. And that's a tragedy. I mean, they were being half-hearted twice. They were being half-hearted in the match they were blowing, and they were doing it so they'd have an easier time later in the tournament, right? So they were being half-hearted here, and they wanted to give a half-effort later. So easy way to the gold, they thought. Easy way to the gold. And they got disqualified. We don't want to be that way as Christians. Paul says, keep your eyes on the prize. Hebrews talks about as we live our lives, the great cloud of witnesses, the saints in heaven who have gone before watching us. What are they seeing as they see your life of faith? Wouldn't it be terrible to know if they were hailing down booze on the church today or on any one of us because we were half-hearted instead of whole-hearted? Wouldn't it be terrible if any of us were disqualified from the prize because we weren't giving it our all? So we do. We strive for the prize. We strive to get the gold. Like Missy Franklin, like Serena Williams, like Gabby, like Michael Phelps. We give it our all and get that gold. We do that in our Christian life. Whole hearted living for Jesus because of what he's done. May we be God-focused in our lives. May we give him the glory in every way imaginable. In our worship together, may it be dynamic and powerful because we're meeting with the living God and praising him. May we be God-centered in our serving those in need. May we be God-centered in our sharing of the gospel, in our day-to-day life, And in doing that, may our lives continue to be transformed. May we make a difference in the world around us. May we bring many to Jesus to know the God who makes a difference now and forever.